Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zosa Africa Amuka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko, and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Donald Trump leads as vote counting continues in U.S. presidential election. African leaders call for continental peace mediation efforts to resolve political crisis in Libya. And authorities in South Sudan plead with Kenya not to withdraw its troops. In economics news, South Africa's trade minister says the manufacturing sector needs more support. And in sports news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana prepares for World Cup qualifier against Senegal. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. There's disappointment in New York as Donald Trump takes the lead in the electoral votes. New York is a stronghold of Hillary Clinton, and those watching the big screen are shedding tears. Trump has 228 electoral votes, while Clinton has 209. Two blocks away at Donald Trump Center, Trump supporters are celebrating. African leaders have called for the launch of continental peace mediation efforts to resolve the political and security crisis in Libya. Heads of state from South Africa, Ethiopia, Chad, Congo, Brazzaville and Niger are in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa for emergency talks on the situation in the oil-rich North African state. While the UN-backed government in Tripoli battles to contain warring factions, the Islamic State group is exploiting the instability in Libya to launch attacks in neighboring countries like Chad and Mali. Chairperson of the Af- African Union Commission Gosazana Laminizuma told the meeting this makes Libya a threat to regional security. Ladies and gentlemen, our meeting today must help Libya to move forward so that we can resolve the situation. Today, as we speak, 2.4 million Libyans are in need of humanitarian assistance. They include more than 350,000 internally displaced and more than 270,000 migrants who are stranded in Libya and are trying to make the perilous journey to Europe. The economic situation in Libya is equally dire, with destruction of infrastructure, oil production at dangerously low levels, The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court believes the plights of victims of atrocities are absent in debates in which the court is being criticized. In an exclusive interview with SABC News in New York, Fatou Bensouda argued that the inner workings of the court are not well known. She says this had led to increased criticism of the institution. Unfortunately, one of the challenges that we find is that the court is not known. How the court is working is not known. What are the limitations of jurisdiction of the court? And it is very easy for the naysayers to fill this void and start giving a wrong story of what the ICC is all about. It's unfortunate. But as I said, we will do what we can. We will continue to put the word out there 
of how important this institution is and how this institution was set up. Really, I always say the reason that for creating the ICC is because of the victims, the victims who ordinarily will not have justice because usually those who are supposed to rule them are the ones who are committing the crimes against them. Pensila says uh, that more emphasis must be placed on the victims of crimes in discussions of the functioning of the court. To find justice at home is, is very, very difficult. But that there is an institution that they are part of that will independently come in, investigate and prosecute and that they should have hope in this institution. So this is, this is a story that really should be known out there. Because another unfortunate thing is uh, in this whole debate about the ICC and the criticisms against the ICC, the aspect that is missing is about the victims, the victims of these crimes. No one talks about them. And these victims, I continue to say, in the cases that we have in Africa, they are also African victims. They deserve justice. In the absence of ICC, who is giving it to them? Exiled Burundian investigative journalist Bob Rukurika says his country has no room for journalists to operate freely. However, he has urged members of the media to continue highlighting the plight of the people in Burundi because if nothing is done, President Pierre Ngurunzinza will continue to do as he pleases. Rukurika was speaking at the 5th annual Carlos Cardoso Memorial Lecture in Johannesburg, South Africa, named after the slain Mozambican journalist. In Burundi now, all independent media are closed, all independent media are destroyed, all independent journalists, around 100 are in exile. We need your attention, because if no media are talking about Burundi, this president will continue to kill people, will commit another genocide. And finally, Lesotho Prime Minister Pakadita Mosesidi has sacked four ministers and moved his deputy Munyane Mulelegi from the key post of police ministry to the Prime Minister's office. Mulelegi is reported to be in talks with the opposition. Meanwhile, telecommunications operators in the country say the regulator has requested the opposition on the temporary closure of Facebook and Twitter following widespread speculation that the government wants to shut down social media. Ntakwane Ngadani reports. In fighting in the biggest coalition government partner, Democratic Congress, is spreading into the executive. Deputy leader Munyane Muleleki is reported to be in talks with exiled opposition leader Tom Tabani to oust Musisidi. Now he has been moved from the Ministry of Police. Four ministers believed to be from his faction have been fired. New ministers believed to be supporting Musisidi have been moved to key ministries or newly appointed to replace those fired. Meanwhile, why spread talk that the government wants to shut down social media has seen telecoms operators issuing statements to explain that they have not yet been ordered to do so but instead to show their position on the issue that's the latest news Shine. africa Zosa. africa amuka na unai. Thank you, Amanda. The African Union is proposing a new tactic to help the people of Libya, bringing all stakeholders in the current Libyan conflict together and assisting them to come to a compromise agreement for a transitional government. This has been announced at an AU summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Coletta Wanjohi has more. 
President Jacob Zuma is part of the presidents attending a summit held at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa to discuss the ongoing conflict in Libya. It has been five years since political turmoil hit Libya and it is now costing the country lives and property. The chairperson of the African Union, Idris Dabi, who is also the president of Chad, says that it is time to have the warring parties be guided by the AU to reach a compromise agreement. The African Union intends to bring together as soon as possible all the Libyan stakeholders without any exclusion to enable them to engage in a frank and direct dialogue on the implementation, effective implementation of the political accord. On that score, we have the duty to make the necessary efforts to bring the positions of the different parties together in order to find a solution of compromise likely to put an end to the crisis and also which paralyzes the transition process. President Idris Dabi says that the challenge with the Libyan factions fighting for power is that each of their camps has political and military actors with divergent interests. The chairperson of the AU Commission, Blamining Kosa Zanazuma, also adds that the African Union is keen to stick to political dialogue as a solution to the Libyan crisis. And of course we also know as Africans the old saying that if you want to walk fast, walk alone. But if you want to walk far, walk with others. So we feel that it's very important to, for all of us to work together in this to reaffirm the imperative that only a political dialogue can bring lasting solution to the Libyan crisis and also to, aff- to affirm that no military intervention can be useful. Instead, it can escalate and complicate the situation in the country and its neighbors. The African Union says it supports the ongoing peace process under the United Nations, but there is need to bring back the transitional process within the framework of the political agreement to remove the current stalemate. The members of the AU High-Level Committee of Heads of State and Government on the Situation of Libya are Algeria, the Republic of Congo, Egypt, Mauritania, which is the chair, Niger, South Africa and Uganda. The AU representative for Libya, the former president of Tanzania, Jakaya Kikwete, was also present at the summit. Koleto Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Authorities in South Sudan have pleaded with Kenya to drop its decision of pulling its 1,000 troops from Africa's newest nation following the sacking of a Kenyan military commander by the United Nations. So far, the Kenyan government has remained tight-lipped on whether or not, indeed, it will rescind its decision. James Shimangula has more. South Sudan remains a worried country because its future stability hinges on permanent peace. Peace that will replace instability that has gripped it for more than three years following on and off fighting between troops loyal to President Salva Kiir and forces supporting former Vice President Riek Machar, now leader of a rebel movement that has vowed to topple President Salva Kiir in Juba. The worries of South Sudan stem from an announcement made recently by the Kenyan government that it will withdraw its 1,000 troops from South Sudan following the sacking of one of its military commanders by the United Nations. South Sudan has vehemently denied that it pushed for the sacking 
of the Kenyan commander and that it was not party to the UN's sacking decision. The Kenyan military commander lost his job because, as the United Nations put it, he failed to take quick military measures to stop heavy fighting, which resulted in the death of more than 70 people in July this year. The fighting, as has been said at the outset, was triggered by military and the political differences between President Salva Kiir and the former Vice President Riek Machar. Machar now lives in Sudan's capital Khartoum and recently, while in South Africa to undergo medical treatment, vowed to bring down President Kiir's government. The sacking of the Kenyan military commander has angered the Kenyan government, prompting the Juba authorities through their Minister of Information, Michael McQuay, to address a press conference where he pleaded with the Kenyan government not to withdraw its troops from South Sudan following the sacking of one of its commanders there. If the Kenyan government insists, on his decision, then definitely we will have to review the whole process because there are already forces here which are Kenyan and Kenya is supposed also to contribute forces to the RPF. RPF that South Sudan Minister of Information Michael McQuay is referring to is the Rapid Protection Force comprising 4,000 troops which the UN announced would go to South Sudan to protect civilians from attacks by warring factions. Amplifying further on Kenya's announcement that it will withdraw its troops from South Sudan, Information Minister Michael McQuay pointed out this key factor. And if it has decided to withdraw its forces and not to contribute, then definitely that is a setback also. We pleaded with the Kenyan government not to implement its decision. At the same time, we pleaded or requested the UN Security Council to sit with the Kenyan government so that they can come up with an amicable solution for the interests of peace in South Sudan, because we are the people affected most. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 7.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Human rights groups in the Kenyan coastal city of Mombasa have expressed concern and disappointment at the worsening state of corruption in the country. Recent cases that shook the country include allegations against some government officials for the abuse of funds in the Ministry of Health, 
and the National Youth Service scandal involving at least 11 cases of money laundering. Civil society organizations are now urging President Uhuru Kenyatta to take appropriate action against corrupt individuals in his government or step down. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. Addressing a media conference in Mombasa on Sunday, organized by five civil societies group, the executive director of Wahaki Africa, Hussein Khalid, said corruption has become more than a menace in Kenyan society, enriching individuals at the expense of public good. Kenyans today are one of the most highly taxed people in the world. Yet, when the taxes reach the government, instead of Kenyans being rewarded by proper services and delivery of development, their money is lost through corruption and only benefits a select few. It is evident that corruption is so rife in both national and county governments. As hundreds currently face starvation in the extended dry periods across the country, money that could have been used to save their lives is wasted away in the pockets of corrupt politicians and their relatives. Khalid added that despite the fact that President Kenyatta is aware of the corruption in his government, he has not taken any necessary action, leading to many Kenyans losing confidence in the government. In the recent cases of grand corruption, that is the Eurobond, National Youth Service, Ministry of Health and other cases, implicated officers are still in office enjoying taxpayers' resources. No action has been taken, neither by the president nor the ESCC, to deal with the looters. Those assembled here today are calling for the firing of all implicated individuals. We also call for the freeze of their personal bank accounts and assets with immediate effect pending investigations. Bonfaz Mwangi, the executive director of Team Courage, urged Kenyans to wear red clothes and blow their car hooters every Thursday as a way of pushing the leadership of the country to sack corrupt politicians and government officials. The president must act, and if he fails to act, you're asking for him to resign, because if he doesn't, we're going to ensure that he leaves office. And we are asking all Kenyans, wherever you are, every Thursday, wear red in solidarity in the fight against corruption. And if you're driving... Every Thursday at 11 p.m., you hoot wherever you are or you make some noise. It is our responsibility as the people of this country, as taxpayers, to fight corruption. We are not afraid. We are not going to be silenced. We are not going to be bought out. We shall keep on speaking. Mwangi also blamed the Kenyan parliament for being reluctant to bring a motion to impeach President Kenyatta. Parliament is playing ping pong. We have members of parliament who have the powers to impeach the president. I know the president has tyranny of numbers, but as parliamentarians trying to bring a motion to impeach the president for failing to do his job, they haven't tried that, doing that. We are asking if they mean business, they can bring a motion to impeach the president. And even if it fails, they tried. But beyond that, I'm telling Kenyans, beyond impeaching the president, beyond the Red Thursday, we all have a vote and we can make Uhuru, Mwegai, Kenyatta a one-term president. That was Bonfas Mwangi, Executive Director of Team Courage. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. South Africa's ruling African National Congress caucus in Parliament has asked to be given space to make its own decision on the motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma. This is in response to ANC veteran Mavusom Simang, who has appealed for the ANC MPs to vote with the opposition on the motion. Lula Mamatya has more. The motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma was submitted by the DA last month. It will be debated on Thursday afternoon. The DA says the slow economic growth, high unemployment levels, 
the controversial nuclear deal and the challenges facing some of the state-owned enterprises are an indication that President Zuma must step down. Party Chief Whip Johnston Hasen explains. And so it's our view that the ANC isn't capable of self-correction. Now, we're not members of the ANC, so we can't go to their Congress and, you know, uh, or the NEC and say what needs to be said. But as the official opposition in Parliament, it's our duty, when civil society speaking out, when business is consolidating to speak out, it's our duty as the official opposition to ensure that this matter is debated in the National Assembly. And it also gives those people in the ANC who are tired and fed up of what is happening to their party to actually stand up and, and, and say something and do something for a change. The party is appealing to ANC MPs to vote with their conscience in supporting the motion. ANC veterans have also entered the fray. ANC veteran Mavusom Simang has asked the ANC MPs to support the motion. When our president gets so errant, you would expect that a living organization would find a way of gracefully removing him. On the NEC, there are people who want the ANC to run according to its uh, uh, traditional values. They are drowned by a cacophony of noise that's coming from people who have everything to lose if Zuma went. So we will find ourselves having to oppose the DA because it's the DA. Yes, I would say we should vote for the removal of this uh, person. The ANC caucus in Parliament has, however, asked to be given space to make its own decision on the motion. Caucus spokesperson Muloto Motapo says they will meet today and decide their approach on the matter. However, it must be clear that they are not friends with the DA. We as the ANC in Parliament, we respect the veterans of the movement. They are the ones that we, from time to time, cast our eyes uh, towards them for wisdom and uh, political direction. They are, in essence, the fountain of wisdom, and we respect the views and the advice that they offer to us. But uh, they should also appreciate that as the ANC in Parliament, we should be given space to determine our own approach with regard to various topics that uh, appear before Parliament. EFF Chief Whip Floyd Shibambo also said that they are still going to decide on how to approach the matter. Shibambo says while they believe that President Zuma should have left office long ago, the DA was too quick to submit a motion. We think that uh, uh, Zuma must go. It's like it should have gone as, as soon as yesterday. Uh, but there are some technical issues which we think that the DA missed in this context. Uh, they should have allowed for more time, mostly for the ruling party to engage and take a posture in terms of some of these issues, so that when we put the motion of no confidence, it ultimately succeeds uh, so there are technical mistakes that were made by the DA uh, in terms of Zuma going. We all of us agree that he must go. Even majority of ANC members agree that he must go. Uh, but there are technical issues that uh, should have been taken into consideration before the motion of confidence of no confidence was brought into Parliament. A previous motion of no confidence brought by the DA against President Zuma eight months ago 
was rejected by 225 votes. Lula Mamatya in Parliament. South Africa's former public protector Tulima Donsela says she made the decision to make her interview with President Jacob Zuma on allegations of state capture public before she left office. She says this was not to try and prove that the state had been captured, but rather to prove that she did give the president a chance to respond to the allegations. But Donsela says at the time, Zuma had already told the nation that as the public protector, she treated him unfairly by by not affording him the opportunity to respond to the allegations around state capture. Morafe Tabane reports. As former public protector advocate Tulima Donsela fielded a barrage of questions from journalists, she was at pains to explain that the current public protector, Busisi Mkwebane, has already issued a statement highlighting that all questions about the report be directed to her. Well, I'm trading on dangerous ground on the state capture report because the public protector issued a media statement indicating that she would prefer to answer any questions relating to that report herself. Asked about the interview she had with President Jacob Zuma, Maronzela said the interview was not leaked. She reiterated that she made the decision to make the interview with the president public before she left office. I was the public protector until the 14th of October this year. As a public protector, I made a decision that my interview with the president must be made public. Not as evidence of whether or not the state capture, as evidence that I did give the president a chance to answer. You will recall that by the 14th of October, the president had already told the nation that he is taking me on application for an interdict because I had not given him due process. Maronzela says if the president had cooperated with her by answering her questions, she would have been able to conclude the first part of the report before she left office. The former public protector also said President Jacob Zuma had the legal duty to ensure that he investigated claims by the Deputy Finance Minister Mkwebisi Jonas that he had been offered a bribe to take up the job of Finance Minister by the Guptas at the time when Jonas made the announcement. Had I concluded it on time, we would have had a final report on the first part of the report, which is whether or not the president violated the executive ethics code. The questions there were simple. The one was, did he do what he's required to do? For example, legally, I deemed that the president had a duty to investigate the moment Deputy Minister Jonas said he had been offered a bribe to be a minister. The president had a duty to do that in terms of the executive ethics code, in terms of section 9 of the constitution, in terms of section 195 of the constitution, in terms of section 237 of the constitution, and just generally as a good practice. Meanwhile, one of the speakers at EPSIP conference was former finance minister Trevor Manuel. He appealed to black professionals to assist in ensuring that the majority of South Africans are included in the mainstream economy and that they become beneficiaries of the black economic empowerment policies. Manuel says an observation he made when reading about Tegeta in the State of Capture report seems to indicate that some members of the Gupta family who arrived much later in the country have never had any challenges in qualifying for BE deals. Manuel says this is wrong. 
The question we have to answer is how we can meet the twin objectives, uh, objectives of inclusion and the uh, advancement of the historically excluded while maintaining a focus and training for excellence. Against this reality, when I read the State of Capture report last week, I observed that the owners of Tegeta have no such impediments. In fact, it appears that the Gupta family, who arrived from India much later, have never had any triple B, double E qualification issues. There's something seriously untoward about this contradiction. And that was South Africa's former finance minister, Trevor Manuel, ending that report by Murafe Tabane in Johannesburg. Donald Trump is so far performing better than expected in the U.S. presidential contest. As votes are counted across the United States, the Republican candidate is projected to have won Ohio, Florida and North Carolina. Trump and his Democrat rival Hillary Clinton competing neck and neck to hit 270 electoral votes required to win the presidency. Trump is currently leading in the popular and college votes out 538 college votes out of 538 college votes, Trump has won 238, while Clinton has got 209. For more on this, Balisa Chubisi, Kubisi spoke to U.S. correspondent Sean Bryce Pease live from New York. Three successive terms in the White House was when uh, George H.W. Bush replaced Ronald Reagan in the White House in 1998. And uh, in the last 60 years, that was the only time that has happened. Generally, this country likes to switch after two terms of one party to another. But in addition to that, you know, the historic pres uh, presidency and the historic nature of the first black president in the United States offended a lot of people in this country. Let's not, let's not mince our words. There are a lot of people that are angry that a black man is in the White House. And I think part of Trump's resurgence in this race is due to that. We are seeing a, a, a record turnout in this election. We were, we were talking about swing states of Florida and Nevada seeing record turnouts among Hispanic voters. Well, I can tell you from the numbers we are seeing tonight, there's been a record turnout from white rural uh, people in this country that have elevated Trump to now favorite uh, for the presidency tonight. But if you were to talk to us about uh, Trump's uh, policies, uh, Sherwin, how can you just uh, elaborate further on them? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the markets now. Things are not looking good for the markets now. Well, the market certainly were expecting a Clinton win. All the projections before we started, uh, you know, before polls closed tonight, all the projections had Clinton winning, 85%, 95%, whether it was the New York Times or, or Reuters model, they all had Cl Clinton winning very, very easily. Uh, Trump has confounded those numbers, those models. Clearly, they've made some mistakes somewhere, or they certainly didn't count certain people. And you talk about the, politic, uh, the, the policies of this candidate. You know, this has been an election not framed around the policies of the candidate or or in any of the candidates, this has been an election framed around the personalities of this candidate. And I tell you, the effects are quite uh, severe, or, or certainly quite serious. I mean, what you have essentially is if Trump comes in, if he wins the White House, it looks likely that Republicans will hold on to the Senate. It looks likely that Repo Republicans will maintain their majority in the House of Representatives, which means the Republicans will control all three arms of government. And that spells, uh, that could be the death knell for, uh, you know, the Obama legacy. For example, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, Trump has said that they will uh, rep uh, repeal and replace. And so there are a number of things you can think about. Relations with Cuba, will that now be turned around? 
uh, in, in a Trump presidency. So there's a democratic legacy that is at stake here. And unfortunately for uh, people like uh, the first family, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, uh, this is not looking like a good night. And let's not even talk about Hillary Clinton and her husband, Bill. Mm, no, yeah, no, we can imagine. But if, if things were to remain this way, uh, Sherwin, can we perhaps see a, a request for a recount or, or maybe protest, especially from the supporters of Hillary Clinton and the Democrats? Well, it's certainly too early to speculate on recounts. We need to look very closely at the numbers that come in once all the ballots are in. I think what you have are a number of networks calling, uh, projecting that certain candidates will win a certain state, but the numbers are still trickling in. And if, if there's a close uh, tabulation in, in, in various states, then certainly that becomes an option. We saw that certainly in the, in the cliffhanger in 2000 uh, when Al Gore and George W. Bush were in a very, very tight race and Florida was eventually decided by the Supreme Court. So there is precedent for that, but it's too early to speculate on whether that will be the case in this election. So far, we are seeing Donald Trump doing very well, Hillary Clinton doing very badly. Uh, legal matters are, are something to be left for a later stage. Yeah, I do believe it's still very early to speculate now, Sharon, because there are about nine more states still to be counted. Nine more states to be counted, and Hillary Clinton, if you know, she wants to be known as a comeback kid, uh, uh, right about now would be, be a good time to start. That was our New York correspondent, Sean Bryce P, speaking to Balisa Kubisi. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. Supporters of Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump are beginning to feel confident as he's projected to have won the key states of Florida and Ohio. African leaders called for the launch of continental peace mediation efforts to resolve the political and security crisis in Libya. And Lesotho's Prime Minister Pakadita Musisiri sacks four ministers and moves his deputy Munyani Muleleke from the key post of police ministry to the Prime Minister's office. Details at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. The South African Police Service has recently been criticized for its heavy-handed approach during the Fees Must Fall protests, which often turned violent. Claims that police used excessive force against students were subject to an investigation by police watchdog Independent Police Investigative Directorate, as many say it was an indication of police brutality. Dr. Johann Berger, Senior Researcher, Crime and Justice Program at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa speaks about the state of police violence in the country. The interesting thing about the police is that they are allowed a certain amount of force in the execution of their duties. And that is covered especially by Section 49 of the Criminal Procedure Act. And that even includes deadly force. But of course, there are certain requirements that the police have to uh, adhere to. When the police stand accused of brutality or brutal tactics, then by implication you have to look at how police brutality is defined and the international understanding or the internationally accepted definition of brutality is that it is the use of more force than is legally allowed or legally sanctioned. In other words, 
where the police overstep the boundaries of what the law allows them in terms of the use of force, that then becomes excessive force, and excessive force can be also referred to as, as police brutality. Critics also say that in, in such instances where there is police brutality, you find that it's due to the fact that the police services generally, um, they lack a sense of direction. Is that something that you, you, you would agree to? You know, I think that would be a very simplistic way of looking at it. Certainly, we have seen incidents where the police used unnecessary force or excessive force. Uh, we've seen some video clips of, of such incidents. But at the same time, we have to look at also the total number of incidents that require police intervention in terms of crowd-related incidents and there we are talking about an average of between 13 and 14,000 crowd-related incidents almost every year. This has increased with about 40% in the last decade. Incidents of crowd-related events that, that uh, became violent increased by something like uh, almost 400% in the same period, that is the last decade. Uh, in most of these instances, it is uh, individuals or small groups within the crowds that then perpetrate um, acts of destruction and, and violence. So then the incidents where the police use unnecessary excessive force is a relatively small proportion of those big totals that, that I've given. Of course, it still is unacceptable, and from what we've seen on some of the video footage that that became available, in some instances, it's, it certainly looked like some of those police uh, officials running around, especially on the campuses, appeared to lack direction. They appeared to be without proper command and control. Again, I think these were more isolated uh, than anything else, but that it happened and still happens is a huge concern and hopefully the police uh, management themselves have seen this and taken that into consideration in terms of how they improve their policy on crowd management and the training for those officers involved. But generally would you say that the South African government is looking into issues of police brutality with a sense of urgency when uh, one looks at cases um, of the likes of Andres Tatane and Marikana? Is there really an indication of um, there being something done about that and, and, and you know, perhaps with a, with a sense of urgency? Well, I, I think there is. You may recall the Minister of Police towards the end of last year already announced the appointment of what he called a panel of experts, especially emanating from the Marikana Commission's report. And that, that panel comprises representatives from South Africa and also from abroad, so international and local experts. And they are currently involved in discussions and research to look at especially public order policing, but also perhaps a little uh, wider than that. The last two days, in fact, representatives from that panel of experts have attended the police's training facility where public order policing members are being trained to assess for themselves the level and the quality of training of these officers. So, yes, you know, by looking at these things, I, I, I would think that government 
is is taking this seriously and certain steps are being taken. So hopefully we will have a report by this expert group before the end of the year and or then early next year. And that then would certainly become a, a sort of a, a guidelines document for future training, selection, training and equipment of especially our public order police officials. That was Dr. Johan Berger, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, speaking to Komotomo Pulane. Malawi has food insecure citizens due to drought and dry spells experienced during the last growing season. This has, in the recent past, affected enrollment in primary schools, especially those flood prone districts such as Chikwawa, Nzanje, and Mwanza. Learners go on an empty stomach to school, but there is relief because Malawi Red Cross is implementing a school feeding program to boost enrollment and deal with malnutrition. George Mango reports from Chikwawa. I'm right here in Chikwawa, especially at Mavua Primary School, where there is a big project going on and this project is being facilitated by Malawi Red Cross Society. Malawi Red Cross Society is one of the largest humanitarian organizations here in Malawi. It gets funding from different uh, organizations abroad and in this perspective it's about the school feeding program. This school feeding program has increased the school enrollment. Felix Washoni, you as the communications manager from Malawi Red Cross Society. We came up with this program to help them so that they can concentrate in their studies. We are supporting uh, over 12,000 learners in uh, different schools in Chikwawa and Manza districts. At the moment, as you can see, the learners are happy and we are told by the head teacher of this school that this project has increased the enrollment of the learners in this school. It has also reduced dropout and absenteeism. And on top of that, the learners are concentrating in their studies in class. Why did you just single out the learners? Why not empowering families so that they eat together as a family? We have not singled the learners only. This is another component which we said we must uh, help the learners to concentrate on their studies. Let me inform you that we are also in the project of uh, social cash transfer, whereby we are giving communities money each and every month with financial support from the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent and the Netherlands Red Cross. We are giving people money every month to access food. Now, right here at the primary school, you as head teacher, is there any change? My name is Abraham Masamba. And I'm the head teacher of this school, Mavua Primary School. Yes, this feeding program has brought a number of changes, mainly to the children who are learning here. First of all, it has increased the enrollment. Previously, we had less than 500 learners coming here to school. But as of now, the number has increased to 633. The main contributing factor is the feeding uh, program. Since these learners, they know that when I go to school, I'll have something to eat. And it has also reduced the dropout uh, rate. As you know, in the villages, 
there is severe uh, hunger. Uh, Chikawa district has been affected by uh, hunger. There is shortage of food uh, or else we don't have uh, food. So these learners, we are not uh, coming to school because they are not having food to eat. As you can hear in the background, this is a detailed, you know, event that happens each and every morning in different schools. Women were organized, they clean the pots, they ensure that the environment is very clean, and then they cook the porridge. And after that, children or learners line up. They wash their hands, and in the process, they go and line up to get porridge. Off they go and sit down. After having finished eating, they go into classes beautifully, joyfully, and indeed, it's really something that the communities here feel has improved education and then the health status. But what's the future of this project? We as Malawi Red Cross Society are busy seeking partnerships so that we can get some uh, donations and support so that we can continue with the project. Let me thank all our partners for the support. As Malawi Red Cross Society, we wouldn't have achieved this single-handedly. Malawi currently has a population of 17 million and 6.5 million people are said to be affected by hunger based on different surveys conducted by a number of organizations. Malawi Red Cross Society is just one of them. And with this school feeding program taking place in different areas, it is the hope of each and every Malawian, including the government itself, that is going to continue on and on so that it bears fruits educationally and for the health status of a child. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Chikwawa, Malawi. And I'm Tavi Solohoku with an economics update. Good morning. The South African Tourism Office in the United Kingdom says Brexit will not harm British visitors' numbers to the country in the near term. Speaking at one of the world's biggest trade shows for the tourism sector, Tolene van der Narva says South Africa continues to be great value for money for UK tourists despite dramatic fall in the strength of the pound when Britain voted to leave the European Union. Catherine Drew reports from London. It's a crowded marketplace with fierce competition, something that is shown each year at the World Travel Market in London as multiple countries and regions compete with each other for market share. But this year, South Africa has seen a remarkable increase of 11.7% of visitors from the UK, thanks in part to the strength of the pound against the rand. South Africa's rail, port and pipeline company Transnet plans to spend about 1.50 billion US dollars on mergers and acquisitions in the rest of Africa as it embarks on a major expansion drive outside its home base. The company has given no further details or a time frame for the acquisition plan. Transnet, which has struggled with declining commodity export volumes stemming from the slump in minerals prices, is looking to deploy its expertise in running ports, pipelines and rail elsewhere in Africa. First National Bank is set to continue providing its customers with reliable high-speed electronic banking services. 
Thanks to a renewed contract signed this week with internet service provider Paratus Telecommunications Zambia. Under the terms of the contract, Paratus enables FNB to provide a robust electronic banking platform to its Zambian customers across the banks of branches and agencies connecting FNB Zambia to the Bank of Zambia's electronic clearinghouse and the Zambia Revenue Authority, as well as MTN and Ertel mobile networks. Paratus is also connecting FNB Zambia back to the bank's head office in South Africa via a redundant virtual private LAN service. Kenya is to host an international forum on Islamic microfinance from next Tuesday as the country consolidates status as the regional hub of the global Islamic finance industry. Delegates from at least 35 countries will converge in Nairobi to deliberate on the latest developments and trends in the growing multi-million dollar industry, including the policies and standards to nurture the sector. The industry is based on advancing interest-free loans to financially disadvantaged and vulnerable people or groups to help them create sustainable income-generating activities and lift themselves out of poverty. Oil prices have turned lower, as early counting showed Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton waging a close battle in several crucial battleground states in the U.S. presidential election. With the traders glued to their screens, Brent crude futures only started trading shortly, highly unusual for the international oil benchmark. After seesawing early, Brent prices were trading down over 2% from their last settlement. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.35 in South Africa, 10.30 in Botswana, 9.65 in Zambia, 8.0 British pound, 9.0 euro, gold $1,318, platinum $1,007 per ounce, brand crude $44.83 a barrel. Channel Africa, we are the voice of the African Renaissance spreading throughout the continent. Figile Senegal and Bafana Bafana against South Africa. When is that match taking place? It's on Saturday afternoon. At uh, Peter Mugaba Stadium? Yes, in South Africa's Limbobo province. That's where this crucial uh, 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier will, will be played. And hopefully South Africa will win. We don't need a draw this time around. We need to be <laughs> sure when we go to the next uh, uh, leagues. <laughs> Give us an update. <laughs> first up in our sports update this hour, it's football news where Bafana Bafana had their first training session for the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier against Senegal at the Peter Mugaba Stadium, South Africa's Limpopo province. Coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba revealed that his players weren't as sharp as he had wanted them to be. However, he hopes for an improved tempo in the afternoon session. We have uh, decided to play a full pitch game where we're going to look at them. We started by warming up and we look at that. But uh, I can say that to you, during the warm up, everybody was still sleeping. There was no one was sharp, you know. It's normal, it's normal, you know. Most of these boys played over the weekend. 
and then we moved on to a match situation. I was happy four goals were scored today, and I was saying, why was not this Saturday at least? And then we say we've got four goals. But I think um, we're trying to get a practice match for the afternoon. And then we throw them in in a match situation like and see what's happening. But so far, we are happy about what we're seeing. There is that little bit of a, a promise. There are boys, especially on the striking force, there's one or two players that I think the, few, the country must embrace themselves for good strikers to come out. And we are happy that they'll be coming through this uh, national team. We scored goals, we created chances. So that's what we wanted to see. Newly appointed Banyana Banyana interim coach Desri Ellis has announced a squad of 21 players to represent the country at the 10th Women's Africa Cup of Nations tournament to be held in Cameroon from the 19th of November to the 3rd of December. The national team has never won the tournament before and have been runners-up four times. Ellis, who has been in the finals of this competition in 1995 and 2000, as a player, says every coach competes in a tournament to win. We've been runners-up on four occasions. I was part of that in 1995 and 2000. And it would be remiss of me. Any coach that goes and plays a match or goes to a tournament would want to win it. It's no different. Um, we obviously are playing against other countries that have the same ambition. Uh, that is what we'd like to do. Um, we've been bridesmaids and now we want to be the bride. So hopefully with this fantastic group that we've chosen, we will be able to make the country proud. At the end of the day, we play for this badge, and that is what is important. In athletics, Athletic South Africa, ASA, has assembled five of the best ultra-distance runners to participate at the World 100km Championships in Spain, where they will be chasing for a world record on the 27th of this month. The team, which is in their second week of preparations, are hard at work at Dolstrom in Pumalanga for high-altitude training as part of their four-weeks camp. The team will depart on the 24th of November. The team comprises of Gift Kelehe, Comrades Winner 2015, David Khadjebe, Comrades Winner 2016, Ludwig Mamabolo, Comrades Winner 2014, Bongumu Comrades 3rd Place 2016, Rufus Porto, Comrades 5th Place 2016, Coaches John Hamlet and Enox Kosana, and the team leader is George Lamb. And finally, with cricket news, Dwayne Pituras has been knocking on the Pritchard's door for what seems like an eternity and is finally being heard. It has been a whirlwind couple of months for the 27-year-old all-rounder who was called up to a Proteus squad for the first time in September ahead of one of ODI against Ireland. An injury to Chris Morris then meant that Pretorius was kept on for the five-match ODI series against the Aussies and he now has three international caps to his name in that format. Pretorius is the replacement for the injured Dale Stain and he will be jetting off to Hobart as soon as his visa is approved. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine on the frequencies 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Southern Africa is Mayway with the track titled Zoblazo.
Let's go. 